Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, free rides for Fairmont commuters, a neighborhood calls for drivers to slow their roll, and a new opponent for Elizabeth Warren, local news that you may have missed. Later in the show, at a time when there is a lot of confusion and misinformation about LGBTQ Americans, a book that sorts it all out with facts and figures, LGBTQ stats, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people by the numbers. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Authors David Deschamps and Bennett Singer join us. But first, joining me in the studio, Lauren Dzinski, reporter and editor of the Massachusetts Playbook for Politico. Hello, Lauren. Hey, Callie. Jennifer Smith, staff reporter at the Dorchester Reporter. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks, Callie. And Mike Dehan, statehouse reporter for WGBH News. Hello, Mike. Hello, Callie. Glad to have you all here. Jumping right in with you, Jennifer, because I love something free. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Congressman uh, Mike Capuano is asking for what he's calling an open gate promotion to highlight the Fairmont line uh, because it's not getting a lot of traffic now. And that may be the best way to alert people that it's reliable and available. I didn't even know what it was, honestly, until I read your piece. Right. So the Fairmount line is this interesting portion of the commuter rail that operates almost entirely within Boston, pretty much along the same trajectory as you would expect out of the red line or the orange line or the blue line. So it runs from South Station down to Reedville, passing through areas of Roxbury, Dorchester, Hyde Park. So it's a nine-mile line. It's got eight stops on it. And it then turns into basically the Franklin line if you keep going past onto Reedville. So the Franklin line sometimes uses portions of the Fairmount. And it's got relatively low ridership compared to the rest of the commuter rail. You've got maybe 2,000 people using it on an average weekday. And so that means that MBTA officials think that there's definitely areas where you can kind of bolster the use of the line, whether that means the proposed Foxborough extension that's got people in a bit of a tizzy, or whether that just means trying to boost ridership there. They have these four stops that have to be put in place because of an agreement after the big dig. So there were these stops that were added. So hopefully that means that the people that live along the line can access it more regularly. The downside is that they've had some reliability problems. And the back and forth on it tends to be the ones that live around the line are saying, hey, can you fix this line? We rely on it every single day. And folks on the MBTA side are in kind of a tricky situation because ridership is so low. So Mike Capuano, who has been a big proponent of the line, Congressman Capuano, has suggested that one way to raise awareness for it is to offer a very short-term, unspecified, detail-wise, free ridership promotion where you would allow anyone to kind of use the line for a short-term, familiarize yourself with it in the hopes that you can convert some riders or drivers who just didn't know it was there into using it more regularly 
Now, the MBTA has to kind of work around that because their concern is they can't just put out free ridership for every single line to try and promote it. Otherwise, someone might decide that the red line's not being used enough that day and decide to push for free ridership on it. But he is asking that awareness be raised for the use of the line in the hopes of making it a little bit more crucial. Uh, that's Jennifer Smith of the Dorchester Reporter. But to your point, I mean, I think it's, let's say low ridership happened on the red line one day. That would be one day. But this clearly has been over a period of time and they've measured it. Mike Dean, this all comes back to Keolis. The reason that there was some reliability questions is because Keolis of winter in Boston fame seemed to have some problems making sure that that line was there on time for folks. And as Congressman Capuano says, you know, nobody's going to go try out something if you have to be at work and you're not sure this thing is going to work for you. Right. Keolis is the company that operates the commuter rail on behalf of the MBTA. There's a, a contract that will or will not get renewed when it expires in uh, a few years. And yeah, there's just a lot of criticism on the way Keolis has been running the entire commuter rail system. And this line is one of the best examples. Part of what they're doing is because there are breakdowns, mechanical problems and delays and other things within the fleet as a whole, sometimes if you need to divert a train onto a more popular line, you know, coming in from the South Shore or from the North Shore, you will take it from this little used Fairmont line. And that will only cause more delays and cancellations. You know, this is by far the least used line and by far the most canceled line. And a lot of that is because, you know, it just has a bad reputation. People aren't going to use it if it keeps getting canceled. So it's a little um, self-perpetuating, a little chicken in the egg as far as what goes where and what start, you know, what causes a problem. I think Capuano is on the right path that it needs to be rebranded. It needs some kind of effort to get people out there to do it. I don't know if a, a free day is the one to do that. But, you know, I, I live in that area hmm. and there's very little anything, signage or outreach or anything that says... You can get downtown, you know, using this. I could walk over, you know, it's right by South Bay Station and the, mm. the Upham's Corner Station is right off of, I think, Cottage or Dudley. And you can get downtown that way or you can get, you know, further into the city or out to, out to Franklin if you wanted to. And you're not really doing that. And the next adjacent line is the red line, which is at capacity all the time. So there, there's something wrong with, with connecting with riders to get them on this train. I'm Mike Deanne, WGBH's Statehouse reporter. So, Lauren, I don't live in the area, so I had never heard of it. But to Mike's point, the MBTA is notoriously bad at promoting what is available. I should know about it. And I'm the kind of person, because I like to sample stuff, I would go out of my way. I'm serious. I would go out of my way just to write it. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, I mean, everyone loves a freebie. I also live in the area, too. And even just for me, the mental kind of calculus of, oh, I know the red line is going to be really packed right now, but do I want to take the risk of walking in the opposite direction to go to the Fairmount line that might not necessarily even come or might not necessarily be on schedule? So I think both Jennifer and Mike have touched on the ultimate point of reliance and reliability. If you can't rely on the Fairmount line to show up when it says it's going to show up, you're not going to use it no matter how much or how little it costs. Mm -hmm. But yeah, once they get things figured out uh, in terms of scheduling and stuff, absolutely offer a freebie day. But I think that it's on the MBTA and on Keolis to straighten out how they use the system and how they're running the trains and then do some sort of unveiling. There. Well, my suggestion would be that they have some buses right there 
you know, just you can do it as backup and it, promote the line, offer it free. Let's see how pe- many people will sample it, but also have a backup and let people know if anything happens right now, it's not going to, but we got some buses to get you to the next stop. And I think then people would sample it, but you're right. Nobody's going to just take the risk because unless they have an Uber app and they'll get there that way. But that's annoying. Exactly. All right. Exactly. All right, so Lauren Dzinski, editor of the Massachusetts Playbook, you and Mike both talked about this story with Governor Krista Nunu of New Hampshire singling out Lawrence as the source of the drug problems in his state. Says everybody, all the undocumented immigrants in Lawrence are somehow involved in massive drug trafficking, and it all goes to New Hampshire. Governor Baker has since responded to this and said, we're all, of course, concerned about drugs, but to single out a city, one single city, is just inappropriate. So in the update, subsequently, Governor Sununu and the mayor of Lawrence, Dan Rivera, have kind of called a truce. But there's a couple different layers and things to unpack in this story, in this issue. The governor of New Hampshire is a Republican. Lawrence is a sanctuary city. And if we look at the current political climate, sanctuary city is like such a firebrand type where, you know, like it's such a controversial topic. And so this is something that he kind of decided to go after. Obviously, Dan Rivera stood up in defense of the city. And Lawrence and Chelsea have filed a lawsuit against Donald Trump's executive order looking to restrict funding for sanctuary cities. So it's kind of this long, drawn-out brawl over sanctuary cities, and then there's drugs involved, and it's it's messy. Hmm. The thing that stood out to me is uh, what Sununu made comments about coming ac- across the border and said, yeah. look out and be ready, basically uh, implying, I guess, that if Massachusetts or the local Lawrence authorities can't get a hold on their crime or drug trade or whatever he was referring to, that New Hampshire would have to do something, which is kind of the most outrageous thing. Governors don't threaten to cross over on state lines. Maybe he'll build a wall. And yeah. enforce the law. I mean, he can raise the tolls <laughs> at the border. It's going to be but, a great wall. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't know enough about the law to call it too outrageous because I don't really know, but it does seem at least politically unpalatable. I, I think Governor Baker, uh, when asked about this yesterday, kind of made that clear. He just, you know, said, this isn't helping. Can we can we do something? And that's kind of what brokered the deal, the war, <laughs> right. so-called, over uh, over this between Lawrence and Sununu. Um, it definitely seems to have uh, faded now. Hopefully Sununu walked back some of his comments and Rivera offered to host him, come see what some of the drug enforcement was there. And, and I think also to um, explain what the sanctuary city element dynamic really is about how local law enforcement sometimes prefers not enforcing immigration law so that they can work better with the community, talk to you know the Lawrence police force, things like that. And this is the second governor that's blamed Lawrence specifically mm-hmm. and blamed Massachusetts. Paula Page in Maine said something mm-hmm. uh, very similar last year that Baker had to react to and, and you know, with not a lot of fact backing it up. And, you know, is there an element? Yes, Boston is the, the major metro hub of New England and our highways go north-south on the eastern seaboard. Okay, that that makes sense. Boston and Massachusetts cities, the larger cities, mm-hmm. potentially contribute to the drug trade. I think Baker's point yesterday was that this kind of talk, this kind of language is not in any way helping us solve the problem that we're putting in front of us. And there's a certain amount of the question of scapegoating as well, where, yeah, for think? instance, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you've got these two issues of obviously the uh, opioid epidemic, which is huge and confusing and a mess and people feel completely 
out of control on that one. And then that also tends to be some of the same language used when we're talking about this immigration debate where people really just feel like there's something huge coming and it's overwhelming and they don't really know how to process it. So that's why you get Sununu throwing out things like 85 percent of this is coming from Massachusetts and there's no doubt at all that illegal immigrants are involved. So some of just the confusion about where people are getting these numbers just exacerbated by the feeling of helplessness and kind of fear with both of these situations, I think is definitely serving to complicate the conversation more than it needs to be. And I would add that this is not the first time that Lawrence, I mean, outside of the drug blaming situation has been identified as a dumping ground for other people. So they're making a lot of assumptions, a lot of them, frankly, racist, because the town has a lot of people living there who are immigrants. I did not say undocumented. <laughs> I said people who have arrived here are working and are you know doing their thing like everybody else are citizens of this country. But there is a large number of people there. It's one of our most populated cities in that way. So it's not the first time that Dan Rivera, in fact, Dan Rivera, as we can think back, really came into power by opposing a really horrible article that had been written about Lawrence and said, you know, that is not who we are and I'm not going to take this anymore. Marijuana, Mike Dean. Uh, so finally, they're getting this committee together or this <laughs> From initiative. Marijuana. marijuana, Mike. I Dean. know. <laughs> getting this uh, organization together to figure out how to actually implement what the voters said they wanted here. So, talk about what is likely to happen and also how does it happen in the context of Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, who has stated, frankly, that. Anybody that smokes marijuana is a bad person, and he's not about supporting legal laws that allow for the use of recreational use of marijuana. Right. Well, maybe we should start there because yeah. this is something that uh, kind of threw a wrench into the system of all the states, not just Massachusetts, but all the states that have kind of legalized marijuana, either medically or recreationally. What we're looking at now is um, a change from the Obama administration policy of uh, basically looking the, the other way. They made it quite clear, uh, the Obama Justice Department did, about what types of drug law, marijuana law, they would enforce in states like Colorado that in, you know, Alaska and other states that have been operating a, uh, a legal system. That is, is probably going to change under Jeff Sessions, who is personally very much against it. And judging by what Sean Spicer, the White House uh, press secretary, said two weeks ago now, I guess, that the president is going to enforce this more. And that the president himself thinks that there is a connection between marijuana use and the opiate epidemic. And for that reason, uh, the federal government needs to crack down on the states. So we don't know. <laughs> that could lead to raids. It could lead to just a, a cooling effect, a chilling effect on the businesses that back up a marijuana industry. And that kind of segues into the other thing that the state has to deal with is building this industry. It's not just licensing dispensaries mm -hmm. and cultivators, the people who grow it and everything in between. It's, you know, the banking. It's going to be cash only. There's all sorts of security concerns. There's concerns about following that cultivated marijuana crop all the way from the farm to a retail store. And we do similar type things with cigarettes and, and alcohol and keep tabs on all the different products and where they are. This is going to be a, a further example of that in getting that bureaucracy in place. How do you build that from the ground up as effectively as possible, with or without the federal government looming over? They, they have to. It's their job to figure this out. Therefore, 
the Senate president and uh, the Speaker of the House have decided that they need a new um, joint committee, which I think all the giggles have been exhausted on, on that particular <laughs> joke. But let's just get that one out You're of here our all system. Week. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, we, I've been hearing it for years. But they, it actually is a joint committee, which is a big thing. It's a standing committee. It's of the same standing as your budget committees or your transportation committees. It's a big issue, and it's a full committee that's going to take this on. What are they taking on? Well, they say that they want to uh, enact the will of the people. And depending on who you ask, the will of the people is either exactly what the ballot question that I think 57% of the people are approved uh, in November, the letter of the law, which is now law that says that marijuana will be legal and that you can grow a number of plants and yada, yada, yada. But it also says that there's going to be a three-person commission and a 15-person advisory committee and that they are going to proclamate the laws and the regulations to run this. The legislature has a different uh, approach. Mm -hmm. Most of the legislature, I should say. Uh, Certainly the uh, co-chairs of this committee say no. Now, the will of the people was to legalize marijuana, make it safe, make it available. And that means all sorts of different things. The letter of the law and that effective 12% tax that was passed in November, that could be out the window. And I think very likely it is out the window. These guys are going to, you know, the legislature is going to rewrite the entire law. They're probably going to raise the tax by a significant amount uh, in order to pay for the types of regulation and safety issues and training and different unforeseen consequences that uh, we may encounter. So the tax bit is going to be big. Mark Cusack, the representative from Braintree, who's the House chair of this committee, was kind of going through a litany of things with me about what different things we'll encounter. Well, guess what? Your local police department needs to retrain its drug-sniffing dogs because you can't tell a dog, hey, marijuana is legal now. Don't freak out. You know, when you you smell that on a person. Yeah, exactly. There there, there are dozens of uh, unintended consequences that, you know, will probably cost a lot of money. Therefore, the tax goes up. Therefore, the bureaucracy is probably going to be more complicated. And, you know, there'll be litigation on certain things. It's going to be a big deal. Hmm. So that is the justification for forming an entire new joint committee in order to rewrite a law the voters just passed. Wow. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Lauren Dzinski of Politico, Jennifer Smith of the Dorchester Reporter, and Mike Dehan of WGBH News. You just heard him. So, Lauren, this brings back to the table, and we're going to see more and more of this, I know, the struggle around states' rights and federal laws. I mean, marijuana has been right there even before Jeff Sessions came in, but this is really going to be an interesting exercise around who wins out in the end because I don't know how to read that. It's not just Massachusetts, by the way, that have passed these laws, and now what? Absolutely. I mean, mean, Colorado, we saw the governor come out last week basically say, you know, we're going to fight tooth and nail against whatever is coming from the attorney general simply because it's going to have such a dire impact on our economy. I mean, when we look at how the Trump administration is enforcing federal laws on the states and how, at least initially, it seems like there's a certain level of cherry picking in terms of what they're enforcing and what they're not, whether it's the transgender laws that they say that the states can enforce, but with marijuana laws, no, there's going to be a very specific federal policy. That kind of chaos and confusion throws these extremely contentious issues like Mike just touched on that have such local impacts. It throws such unknown uh, into all of this that it's like, I don't know, I, I honestly don't envy that joint committee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, Jennifer, what I would say is this is going to be a long time 
before anything happens. Right. The way this is looking. Yeah. I I mean, this is, if you're just getting back to even just how long it takes to kind of parse out the intent of the law, it was a 21-page referendum and it was a yes or no on it. So, I mean, part of the deal that the committee is going to have to address is basically how literally were we supposed to take this? Were they asking for all of these regulations? Were people voting because they saw that 12% tax and just went yes? Or were they thinking more in terms of legalized marijuana? Great. So I think part of it, too, is going to be figuring out, do they throw out large portions of this? Do they decide to kind of take a slower, more regulatory approach to just refining certain elements of it. But I mean, we know nothing rolls out quickly here. And the national conversation around marijuana um, and the lack of consistency regarding state versus federal enforcement is really likely to just drag this out for a while. But given if nothing does change, then it would. There, to, there, yeah, yeah. There, there's every indication yeah. that it's going to be massive changes to the law. I don't think there's really any chance that the bill that gets out of this committee that, you know, that the governor can sign to redo these regulations is anything like what was passed at the ballot, Mm -hmm. which almost all lawmakers advocated against. Stan Rosenberg, the Senate president, was the only one who was, you know, as far as the leaders. But I think there's only a handful of House members in general that were on board with the ballot question as it was. They're going to strip it down and build it back up. There's no chance. Because the text of the law, I mean, was pretty much just put out by um, By, by marijuana advocates. Marijuana advocates and the marijuana industry. Exactly. Who are kind of the same people. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think should happen i think they should like good luck with this you know really come up with a kind of firm bill you know like here are the things that we've massively rewritten and then take that around to some serious town halls not on tuesday night right before the super bowl you know i mean like really offer a lot of discussion in the same way that this whole town turned upside down talking about the olympics like we should have that kind of full-on discussion about it surely there will be those folks that are paid on either side to try to, you know, lead that. But there's a lot of regular folk who voted, as Jennifer said, who would like to hear this. And I think that would give you a, give them a good sense and us a good sense of, all right, which one of these things can I live with and which needs to go out right now? Absolutely. And, and that piggybacks off of what the kind of uproar that we saw at the end of December when the legislature during informal session basically voted with very few members actually right. there to delay implementation of the law by six months. There were no public hearings. Right. It was it was shady. Honestly, that was that was how it appeared. And so that's what like it was. Said, it yeah. wasn't just how it appeared. It was shady. Yeah. And, yeah. and it, it, was, yeah. it was under the cloak of darkness Yes, <laughs> in the statehouse. Uh, people want to see marijuana legalized. That is, from what we can tell by the number of people and the margin by which this passed, the number of people that voted for it, that is the will of the voters. And again, going into intent is so thorny yes. and so complicated. And again, do not envy that committee. No, put some uh, stuff on paper. That's what I'm saying. Put exactly, some stuff yeah, down. Yeah. Even if you have to do, here are the four things that we're absolutely committed to. Here are the five things. Eh, let's right. see what you think. And make sure people they, understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. They are, they are touring it. Yeah. They are going to have some hearings, yeah. I think, in you know, Worcester Springfield kind of areas, do some larger meetings there. I don't think they're going to go town to town. Yeah. But you know, they're going to air this out a bit and hear what the proposal are. But one thing, they are going to move faster than the Beacon Hill usually does on this. You know, I've heard estimates everywhere from the spring to the summer or perhaps a, a bill in the spring that leads to a debate in the summer. I think that DeLeo and Rosenberg do want to get this wrapped up before they, they break at the end of July. I don't think that's going to happen because I think Jeff Sessions 
put a little monkey wrench into all of this. And I think if you have to consider all that in any serious way, then even the, all the folks that voted for it in December have to be made to understand what does that mean, too, in the context of this bill. Moving on, <laughs> Jennifer, <laughs> yep. uh, neighborhood slow streets. People can apply to get their street to be a part of this? Right. So yeah. uh, so as as people in Boston know, if they've been driving slower than usual, um, yes. <laughs> not that they have, it's Boston. Yes. Um, but the speed limit right now is down to 25. That's been a recent change. Now, this specific neighborhood slow streets program will allow certain areas, certain neighborhoods to really ratchet that down even further to 20 miles per hour by trying to apply to get their neighborhoods designated as slow street zones. Now, these are areas from like 10 to 15 blocks that would have speed mitigation factors that could include new signage, changes to some of the curb structure, speed humps, not speed bumps. This has been a very contentious thing. Yeah, they're in my neighborhood and they are treacherous. Don't come around that corner going fast. So these these speed (laughs) humps are fascinating because uh, you can plow over them. So they're these longer, slower rides that do slow down the cars in the same way, but it's not quite as uh, violent and unpleasant for the people sitting in the car. So the uh, application period, which can be put through with groups of neighbors, you get civic members to sign on to it, talk to your elected officials, get letters of support, try and map out a zone. Um, This might be, for instance, around schools, around churches, areas that you think people are really just careening down these blocks like lunatics and you'd like them to stop, please. And you can submit these applications to the Boston Transportation Department by the end of March. And what they're going to do is sort through the applications citywide and then pick a few of these areas where they're going to start a two-year process to really pull this through right back to the nothing happens quickly. Um, (laughs) I don't know why you can't build a hump in less than two years. Good God. Well, I mean, that's part of Boston. (laughs) But also, I think part of the thing that's different about this initiative is that it's dealing with larger swaths of the area. It's not the same thing as simply throwing up a new speed limit sign. It's not the same thing as throwing up a stop sign or or putting a singular hump. Like, you want to bring in neighbors um, from around this, again, like 15 block radius. It's not a small area. So, say, so let me just get, yeah. get this oh, yeah, right. Sure. If, if neighbors say, I don't want it, if some, if some then that your application gets thrown out and others rise to the top? Well, so the application means that the community process starts. Oh, so um, not that it's over. Exactly. Oh, okay. So so ideally okay. speaking, in the application, you've already got a decent amount of support from the community. Okay. They're talking about this down um, in Ashmont, in Dorchester. And one of the first things they're asking is, if you people do not want this here, tell us first, because, of course, the neighbors don't want to subject their neighbors right. to, like, a speed hump in front of their driveway right. if they can help it. Oh, that's a good point. So, um, so I mean, a big part of this is it's not there to inconvenience people. It's there to let neighbors who are seeing this kind of rampant speeding have an outlet, basically, right. to ask the city, is there a way that we can slow this down okay. because we're seeing a lot of it? Well, let me just add to that. I put a period on that and say... If you try to fly over those humps fast, you will never do it again. You'll catch some air. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because you will go flying. It is, they're really quite, they work very well. My neighborhood needs one of these. I know. Oh my goodness. Uh, Lauren, I want to talk to you about Trump trade. So, trade is like oxygen to the Bay State. You were this piece about the Massachusetts president and CEO talking about 
how much trade we benefit from here in the state. But as we know, there's a whole lot of uncertainty about trade under the Trump administration. So what does that mean for us? We're just done for? Uncertainty, (laughs) as we've seen in so many other aspects. Uh, So the head of the Associated Industries of Massachusetts, uh, Richard Lord, they're basically, it's kind of like a business organization type Mm -hmm. group. They represent the interests of other business in the state. He basically spoke to a uh, like local, I think it was a Chamber of Commerce breakfast, um, but, but basically was talking about the impact of the Trump presidency on Massachusetts. It was interesting how he phrased it. He basically said, there are going to be changes in Massachusetts and like in the business environment because of Trump. We don't know if it's going to be good or bad, but we know that there will be changes. Well, everybody <laughs> so, knows that. Exactly. So. exactly. But, but specifically <laughs> no. with trade, I mean, he talks about how the state is so reliant on being interconnected with so many other parts of the world that if the country does turn more inward and becomes a little bit more protectionist, like Trump has said that he wants to see, that will be a negative impact on the Commonwealth. And, you know, we've seen Governor Baker talk about this, too, about how he, you know, wants to kind of preserve trade and, um, you know, the role and importance of, you know, the international community right. in the base state. But again, you know, it's it's everyone just kind of watching out and keeping mm-hmm. their heads up. Another th- interesting thing, too, that Lord talked about was opposition for Governor Baker's proposal to increase the amount of money that small businesses pay in to help pay for any expected rises in costs in Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, The the rising cost of health care and the rising number of people that are uh, going into this uh, subsidized plan option. Basically, Mm -hmm. there's so many people that are a part of it Governor Baker wants small businesses to pay in more, uh, and they're saying no, we don't, we don't want to do that. Um, obviously, the healthcare fight is a totally other separate. Well, that's beast. A, that, talk about something that's unknown. We're yeah. just not going to know until that just gets settled out a little bit. And I think that's going to be a minute. <laughs> Absolutely. But I don't want to end up before we talk about this new challenger to, to Elizabeth Warren, because this is very interesting. Because everybody's been talking about what who would run against her, so there's, you know, not been that much interest. But this guy, Lauren, Shiva Watri? Ayudari? Aridari. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. She, so basically. No, so. I'm, I'm mixing up his, his, uh, his quote. Sorry. Shiva Aridari. And I, you know what? I interviewed him 100 years ago. What about? Um, just about stuff. And I got into big trouble because, of course, he's made it quite clear that he invented the internet and some people don't think he did the email the email, email. The email. The yeah email. Gore invented the internet guys right. yes uh, right. yeah so so he's a fascinating character uh based out of cambridge lives in belmont um claims that he invented the email mm. has the owns the domain right. uh inventor of email.com um has actually sued gawker and some other news outlets who right. sought to say differently so uh that he has a history uh, with, he's, with the We should say he's, you know, intellectually brilliant. He's been in this business since he was 14. Yeah, so, okay. yeah, so, right. in like, has received, like, four degrees mm-hmm. from MIT, is a systems engineer, um, and so basically he uh, has decided to challenge Elizabeth Warren in the Senate. Um, I actually chatted with him last week, um, and, and he's got an interesting story. Uh, he's basically... Well, first He's, of all, why does he want to? He wants to challenge Elizabeth Warren. It's kind Unclear. of not super clear. Um, <laughs> I mean, his whole thing is basically he th- he sees an opportunity to incorporate um, 
a smarter way to handle systems uh, oh, into okay. how government works and how government functions. Um, he's a Republican, doesn't agree with Elizabeth Warren, kind of doesn't agree with her her partisan uh, angles, but it's it's he's coming at it from a from a systems perspective. Um, he's, so, he's so, got, so, so to some degree, he's kind of Trumpian because he's using a business approach. Maybe. Yeah, and yeah. and it's also. The the Trump uh, angle is a little bit interesting with him too. Um, he had act- he's actually never voted before until huh? he voted in November really? for Donald Trump. Wow. Uh, yes, this is this is what he told me. I went back and looked at the voter file, and it all checks out. Um, Though, but he's but your story makes clear that he's donated before. To he's various yes, so yes. so okay. he's previously donated to John Kerry's presidential campaign uh, in the 2004 cycle. He also donated to Richard Tissay mm-hmm. um, in 2010, as well as to Donald Trump. Uh, to the victory uh, fund type thing uh, in in this most recent cycle, but but Donald Trump kind of got him active. Uh, Shiva also has at least the initial support of uh, the the perennial. Is he going to run uh, in the Senate cam in the Senate race of uh, Kurt Schilling? So uh, we'll see. Again, we'll see. We don't we don't really know how serious it is. Uh, um, let me just there get everybody is, else in here. Yeah, what do you yeah. think about this? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it is related quickly, to the uh, to the shilling thing. I've been, uh, because we now live in a world where everything has to happen on Twitter or it doesn't happen at all, um, I've been monitoring the uh, the tweets going back and forth between uh, shilling and Shiva. Kurt Schilling. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And it's been fascinating because it seems like a lot of what's been coming up is, again, the question of immigration. They're throwing Mm. around the uh, potential cost of immigration to Massachusetts. It seems like that is a really easy drum to beat right now, um, especially if you're looking to be a conservative challenger to, say, a Democratic stalwart like Elizabeth Warren right now. If you can be the person saying – um, pulling out uh, data wherever it's from, um, saying that uh, illegal immigration to Massachusetts is costing this much. Um, that seems to be uh, the note that he's striking publicly okay. right now. What do you think, Mike Dia? We will see. Okay. <laughs> All right. Is any is he any kind of competition for a Jeff Deal that everybody assumed might run? Well, honestly, it could her? it could make for an interesting primary race on the Republican side. And the one thing to remember is that Governor Baker is also going to be on the ballot um, in Massachusetts in oh. 2018, and he really has his hands firmly around the party apparatus here in the state. So if a Trumpian outsider does try to wage an outsider war, it could rub off uh, the wrong way on the party, the GOP in the state. Mm-hmm. And on uh, Baker while he's trying to get reelected. All right. Well, thank you all very much. We got to keep our eye on that one for sure. Thanks all. Thanks, thank Kelly. you. Thank you, Kelly. Lauren Dzinski is the editor of the Massachusetts Playbook for Politico. Jennifer Smith is a staff reporter at the Dorchester Reporter, and Mike Dean is a statehouse reporter for WGBH News. Coming up, they say numbers tell the story, and that is how authors Bennett Singer and David Deschamps are telling the story of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender experience in America. Those numbers gleaned from the worlds of politics, science, pop culture, sports, and activism are now in their new book, LGBTQ Stats, Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, and Queer People by the Numbers. It is our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 